So you have heard, no doubt, through the years, the, uh, the story about the glass with water in it. Um, optimists, people who look on the positive side of things, always think that the glass is half full. I happen to be married to an optimist. Kirsten always encourages me to look at the bright side. Optimists always seek out the best possible explanation, the best possible a scenario in every situation. And then we've got the pessimists, and you know who you are. Uh, they will tell you that that very same glass is not half full, it's half empty. These folks are able to see the worst in every circumstance. They always see the clouds, and they never, ever see the silver lining. And I hope you listen carefully to the psalm that Tim read, because if you were to ask the writer of Psalm 12, attributed to David, if the uh, glass was half full or half empty, he would say, I don't care. I just know that the water is dirty and foul and polluted and good for nothing. Uh, David is not an optimist in this particular psalm, that's for sure. And he's more than a pessimist. Uh, this psalm does not paint a picture of a sugar-coated world, a world in which everything is beautiful, in which everything is coming up roses, a world in which everything is good and getting better day by day in every way. Uh, this psalm is not about the power of positive thinking. Uh, this psalm reflects the thoughts and feelings, the disposition of someone who has heard one too many lies, who has watched long enough the arrogant and the selfish people having their way. This is the psalm of someone who has seen the innocent suffer with no justice, with no relief, while the wicked just strut around town unpunished, no consequences for their self-righteousness. And as far as the psalmist is concerned in this outlook, this attitude, I happen to believe as your pastor that he's in good company these days. There are plenty enough reasons, are there not, to lament the current state of affairs in our city, in our state, in our nation, in our world. Some of you have told me that you have checked out. You no longer watch or read the news. You don't even want to see the headlines. It's too depressing. It's too distressing. And since the beginning of this year, including some conversations I had while on vacation in the office during worship last weekend, I've had conversations with many members of faith who are more than a little unhappy with what's going on in our community. So much so that they're thinking of moving away from Albuquerque. And I'm not talking about Cedar Crest or Placitas. I'm talking about young people and retired people thinking of moving to Arizona, maybe Colorado. They've had enough. I've heard fellow members of our congregation, the body of Christ here at Faith, lament, just like the psalmist. I've listened to your sadness over what Albuquerque used to be and what you think it's become now. And that's what this psalm is. It's not a sweet little ditty. It's a, a hymn of lamentation. And it laments the reality of evil in the world. 
So what does David do in this psalm with the problem, problem of evil? We pray every week in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. Well, how does David deal with the evil he sees around him that makes him so negative in this particular section of God's Word? Well, maybe he gives us an example. Um, sometimes you just got to speak the truth. You got to tell it like it is. And it's not pretty. And it's not nice. Sometimes you just have to describe things the way they are. No punches pulled. Uh, no rose-tinted glasses. Maybe as Christians we need to do what David does, and that's just, you know, name evil for what it is and rebuke it. The dishonesty, the deception, the arrogance, and the corruption that's all around us. And as we do that, we need to remember that our Father in heaven sees and is aware of far more evil than we will ever see on social media, on television headlines, or in the newspaper. God sees all the evil. He knows it through and through. The evil thoughts, the evil deeds, the evil actions of his people around the world. You think about that. God is aware of all the evil today, all the evil then, and it's to a world like this in bondage to sin that God sent his only son to die on a lonely cross. And God promises that evil shall not prevail. Now this is not sugar-coated preaching. Um, God promises that evil will not prevail, but that adversary, the devil, is out there like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So we name evil, we rebuke it. And we proclaim that God's final word is the final word. Though evil may surround us, it will not overcome us. It will not overcome the church. Jesus promised the gates of hell cannot prevail against my church. Because God's promises are true and trustworthy. God has the final word. Not the criminals, not the corrupt leaders, not the proud who think they are above the law. We are Easter people, you and I. Empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit. We celebrate the empty tune and that life which is true life and eternal life, but we don't get to Easter joy without first going to the darkness and the despair of a Friday we call good. Evil, sin, wretchedness, depravity, it gave God its best shot on Good Friday and it was not enough. It was not enough. God's word abides. The reality of sin, the presence of evil, the increase in disobedience that we see around us is also addressed in our second lesson as Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him in his ministry. As God's people, we're called to rebuke evil, but we're also called, as Paul suggests, to resist it. To resist it. Paul warns us that we of all people, as mature Christians, should not be desired when we see evil in the world. We should not be surprised when people are self-centered and follow their own desires. We should not be surprised when people turn away from the truth. He tells us, in fact, to anticipate these things and to anticipate opposition to the Word of God, opposition to the kingdom of Christ. And he tells us, get this, to expect suffering and rejection when we stand on the gospel. Look what the world did to Jesus. And he tells us not just to expect it, but to stand fast and stand firm 
and resist it. We are to be persistent, brothers and sisters, in our witness to the love of God through Jesus Christ. We are to encourage one another when the world, even our own city, seems to have lost its way. We are to keep working at our ministry as God's own people in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our relationships. And we pray because we can't do it on our own. Martin Luther had it right. We cannot by our own strength, our own wisdom, our own will, our own determination come to Jesus Christ our Lord or know him. But the Holy Spirit has called, gathered, enlightened, and sanctified the one true church on earth through the gospel. We pray that God would give us this will and this strength to rebuke and resist. And I would suggest this to you, given God's witness in the Holy Scriptures. God created the world. It belongs to Him. And God so loved the world, not the sin in it, but He loved His creation so much that He sent His only Son to die a death that He did not deserve. Maybe we need to let God be God and let God take care of the macro problems in the world. It's his world. It belongs to him. But as his servant people, we can do our part in glorifying God and resisting the evil that is close at hand. You may not be able to do much about everything that is wrong with our city today, or our state, or our nation. But you can, and you should, Choose to be honest in your daily work, truthful in your conversations, and seek to be Christ-like in your conduct. You may not have the power to stop others from lying, from twisting the truth, but you can decide that when I speak, I will speak the truth in love. And whatever power I have in the position that God's assigned me, I will not use it to manipulate others for selfish gain. So maybe, just maybe, when it comes to the water in the glass, instead of thinking about whether it's half empty or half full, maybe should, we should remember the water, the ordinary water to which God's word was added when we were baptized. Maybe when the world has lost its way, we need to remember who God is and what he's done among us. How often do you remember your baptism? How often do you think about that day with loved ones gathered around this altar or a baptismal font in some other place or in a hospital emergency room or in your own home when you were baptized, when God seals you with the Holy Spirit, when God marked you with the cross of Christ forever, when you were set apart for ministry, when God promised, you're mine and I'm never going to let you go. I think this is a good day as we think about these two lessons to remember that with every baptism, um, we have both a renunciation and an affirmation. Uh, when I used to be the pastor teaching all the confirmation classes, I would remind those uh, adolescent boys and girls that in many church traditions, uh, going back to the ancient church, there is this renunciation. And some people are quite surprised when they hear it for the first time, thinking, that's kind of weird. Why are you doing that? Well, the, the church has been doing it for almost 2,000 years. Namely, when you ask everyone gathered around the baptismal font, do you renounce the devil and all his lies and empty promises? I mean, that's part of the ancient church's liturgy. 
We don't celebrate the goodness that God is without renouncing the evil that the father of lies is. And this is where the adolescents, not so much the girls, but the boys really like their church history. And I said, do you know, boys and girls, that sometimes in some churches, when they would renounce the devil right in worship, they would, they'd just work up a loogie and spit right in church. You know, devil, we spit on you. You're not welcome here. Go away. And those boys say, oh, we should do that at faith. (laughs) And then we'd have to have the worship committee make an acquisition for spittoons on baptismal Sunday. But you get the point. There's this rejecting. There's this refusal to accept the evil one and his lies. There's rebuking and resistance. And then there's that beautiful affirmation. The world is dark. Sin is everywhere. So don't worry about somebody else's life. Worry about your own witness. Let your light, let that ministry that is uniquely your own in that place where God has uniquely planted you, let your light in the darkness so shine that others might see some good works and then give glory to your Father in heaven. David was truth-telling in the psalm, but Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the darkness then tried to overtake him and overcome him, and it failed. The light of Christ shines, and it will shine eternally. And we ask God to allow that light to shine brightly in our lives, in our homes, and in the ongoing witness of this congregation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are such a good God, a great God, a loving God. You're full of power and mercy. Yet in the world today, it's so easy. It is so easy to doubt, to doubt your presence, let alone your goodness. Father, we look around and evil seems to prosper. The wicked appear to succeed. So save us from despair, Lord. Save us from cynicism and and bitter resignation. Help us to rightly see and understand that Your ways are always good and righteous and that the ways of the wicked will not prevail. Give us the power we need to believe and trust in Your goodness and grace that we might live each day according to Your will and purpose. And we ask these things in the strong, sweet name of Jesus. Amen.